when you think about Dr. Dre, you associate him with excellence in whatever he does, right? When you think about your Jay-Z's, when you think about your, think about anyone that is super successful at what they do. They know their stuff. So even for me, I am trying to get to a point where, like, JS is what I live and breathe. I even want to get to a point where you are, we are even part of those TC39 committees where you're making decisions about the language. What's up, good people? Welcome to another episode of the Concurrency Podcast. And today I'll be your only host. Um, we're going to talk about one of my favorite things the beautiful language of JavaScript. And I'll be talking about JavaScript with Ian Mugenya. Ian Mugenya, yeah, introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, thanks, Steve. So, so my name is Ian, as Steve just mentioned. Uh, I used to call myself a full-stack developer. That's the tag I would use. But nowadays, I call myself a JavaScript developer <laughs> because I, I, I think... The main thing is I understand the language pretty well. So, and it's very rare that I am very good at both backend and frontend. It's always one of the two. So now I decided to go with a JavaScript developer. I am self-taught. Uh, I have been doing it for around three years now. Um, I also do a lot of mentorship. So I do mentorship at ADP List and also at Spaciatech. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, you haven't mentioned the work you do at um, North School, the Nairobi chapter. Oh, yeah, North School as well. So I also uh, mentor at North School, the Nairobi chapter, because there's a bunch of other chapters. Um, so North School is, we have sessions every last Saturday of every month where we go through different topics in JavaScript. So we go through functional programming, we go through carrying, we go through object-oriented through a series of challenges. Normally me and mentors as well. Nice, nice. I know I know the tutors the tutors at Node School Nairobi are some of the best I've maybe listened to. And because I know there's you and then there's Sunday and then there's um Nanda. Mm. Yeah. So so Sunday Sunday has taught me at the at at, at the university. Technically he, he didn't teach me but then he was there and he was teaching another class. Sent to my class, so yeah, yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, Sandy is very—he's um, a very interesting character. I, I've tried getting him to come on the pod, but then he's very—he—he—he—he <laughs> he, he, he feared the questions, and then I'm like, "Yo, Sunday, I, I'm not <laughs> going to ask you hard question." And then again, yeah, Sunday, yeah. So anyway, yeah. um, so yeah, so today we are here to talk about again. The beautiful language of JavaScript. The, the 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 only thing that people are supposed to do on the web, but then people now everyone wants to do things on the web. Like so so, just a bit about yourself, and I understand you have a very interesting background. Um, you switched from a procurement a procurement job in in order to learn programming, and now here you are. So, I'm just curious, how was that? So the simple answer, very difficult. <laughs> I would not like, so maybe I can give a bit of uh, background in terms of why I made that choice because it's, it's not one of those things that a lot of people would do because I was comfortable enough in terms of like I was making enough money. Uh, but the problem was I always felt like I needed to do something in tech. So that was always something that has always been there. I just never knew you would actually do programming as a job because when I think about back in the days when I was younger I never used to see people who were software engineers that looked like us like yeah. I didn't even know it was a, a career path that you could take because the people who would represent the whole ecosystem for computers like Ulkonapotanga most of the time the only work they do is oh you have you're having an issue with your Windows XP installation I'll come and do that for you or yeah. you're having like those small small issues but back then they were really like Big issues, but I never knew you could actually write code. It never even occurred to me that you could do that. So when I started doing a bit of digging, uh, mm-hmm. so first of all, I taught myself networking first before I did oh, programming. 
Uh-huh. The first thing I did, I taught myself how to like uh, work with routers. Uh, I did that for a couple of months. I was able to turn it into a business. Uh, oh, okay. I able, yeah, I was able. Yeah, I was able to start selling, be up uh, like an ISP, a small ISP, and I taught myself the whole thing. So from DNS management to configuring routers, all the good stuff. Obviously, I didn't go deep because networking is just a, another monster on its own. So with that information, now it got to a point where I realized. I wanted some some custom behavior from my routers that I could not achieve unless I knew how to write a program, like a script to do something. Then started the, I started to dive into programming languages, and then I started with a, I know everybody knows CS50 that uh, Harvard course that they offer. Yes, yes. So I started off with that. It's very conk. It's not. They tell, they tell you it's for beginners, but it does have some pretty uh, hardcore concepts, especially if you don't have like a traditional background in computer science, because they yeah. start with the low-level languages. So I did that for a few months, but by that time, the, like, the need or the spark to actually learn more had already been sparked at that point. So then I started playing around with Python, did that for a couple of months, and then I moved into JavaScript. And then somewhere along the line, I just decided that JavaScript was more, uh, more. What is the word I'm trying to look for? Just it's, it's less, it's less straightforward, and that was a good thing for me. I think I enjoyed that. The fact that I did it looked more, um, um, basically, in terms of choosing a path in in tech, it looked like you had more options. Because you have all these yeah. frameworks for the front end, there's so many resources for learning JavaScript as well as compared to Python. So I just decided I'm going to just stick to JavaScript, and I decided to just uh, resign my previous role. Very tough decision, but I think <laughs> at that point I'd try to do it while working for like a whole year. It was not working. You'd find out I would learn how to write Hello World in JavaScript, and then I would go three weeks or four weeks without doing it because upon a time. And then by the time Narubi, yeah. I have to redo the whole thing again. So yeah, yeah that is what fueled the um, quitting and then now trying to do it full time. So now you learned JavaScript, and and of course, of course, of course, you didn't mm-hmm. learn the way JavaScript exactly worked. You just want learned how to use it, um, and I think that is how most people learn JavaScript, and then uh, uh, practically. More, that is how most people learn. You just first of all learn how to use it, then you come back and then learn how it actually works behind the scenes. And so that is what we are here to talk to talk to talk about. So have you watched have you watched the React.js documentary by Hannibal? Yes, I watched it yesterday. All right. Um, I think it was it was very interesting. One just get giving us like a glimpse into the early days of react and how it was how it came to be and just we are not going to discuss that just in in uh, just in light of that um i know you have an article called the evolution of javascript and yeah you you basically talk about exactly that the evolution of javascript and could you give the people a synopsis of of the evolution of JavaScript from its path to maybe where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. So actually when I wrote that article, I I think I had a lot of fun. I think that's one of the articles where I've had the most fun. Because I had to like look for resources that now explain what JavaScript was before this whole thing that we have right now. So um I watched a certain uh um podcast where they had Brendan Eich, who is the creator of JavaScript. So he would yeah. he went through the details of how the language came to be, the reasons behind the language. So even the naming convention for the language is very interesting. Um, so initially, during that time, which was, I think, 1995, if I'm not wrong, remember correctly, yeah. I think that's when the language was created. At that time, uh, Java was the big thing that was the language that people really enjoyed. So that was the hype. 
So as they were developing this other new language that was supposed to sort of be like a sidekick to Java, because Java was already pretty established, as they were looking for a name that would um, like make the, this new language a bit more popular, what did they decide on? Something that was related to Java, which was JavaScript. It actually had a few names before they settled on JavaScript. But the idea was it was supposed to be like a sidekick to Java, like a smaller brother who could do things, but not um, to the same degree as Java, which is more multipurpose or was more multipurpose back then. Um, yeah, so then the language was developed in one week. Can you imagine? That still boggles my mind. Like, we did it a whole programming language in a single sprint. It's just shocking. Like, it just shows that that guy really knew what he was doing. So yeah. he went into the process of now creating the language. Uh, and something very interesting that he mentioned is, I think the double equals in JavaScript when you're comparing two things, like a string and a string. So if you have a string, like two as a string and two as a number, you know what the language does, right? It yeah. will coerce the type. Yeah, so that it returns a, a truthy value. Now, yeah. that thing, that 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 thing that people think was a bug was actually a feature. <laughs> the early <laughs> testers of the language asked him whether he he would be able to do such a thing. So they were like, "Can we just like have a situation where like if I have two numbers, just coerces it and we move along?" So uh-huh. that's how that came to be. First of all, uh, then that's how the language was able to like have like weird weird features like that. But because JS is backward compatible, meaning once you've put something in the language, you can't remove it. That's why it's still there, Bakaleo. And then obviously they introduced the triple equals. Um, and then now the language uh, continued to evolve and some other big, big companies started to see potential in the language. Because back then, the web was this archaic thing, right? Whereby you just have HTML pages and XML, I think, as well. So it, it wasn't really some a place where there was a lot of dynamism. So once JavaScript started to pick up, uh, then they realized they needed to standardize the thing, the language. So one year after the language was created, they standardized it. So now I forgot to mention something. Brendan Ike was working for Netscape, which was, I think, the the big thing, the big browser back in those days. And as they were developing JavaScript, it was supposed to be a, uh, an Oracle project. And I'm sure you know Oracle, this huge company. Yes. And Oracle owned Java. So Oracle owned the name JavaScript. So now when they went to standardize the language, they could not use JavaScript, hence the name ECMAScript. That's where the yeah. language is called ECMAScript. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen there's a campaign out there on trying to get Oracle to release the, that trademark, the name JavaScript. I've seen a campaign. Oh, mm. that is interesting. Mm. Yeah, okay. that's that's why that's why they had to go with a different name. I don't know if they actually released it. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I still I think it still belongs to Oracle. Yeah. 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 So if you've ever wondered why these two names for the language, that's why it's because that 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 name is owned by by Oracle. So now they had to standardize the language, which is now ECMAScript, which was very interesting to me because now the whole process of standardizing the language and then having a document that tells you what the language does, what the language is, the syntax of the language, rules of the language, and then there's a whole committee behind it. So we have ECMA, which is that standardization board. Think about KEBS, like what we have in Kenya, KEBS. But now this one is for, for programming languages and basically like a bunch of other standards. So yeah. ECMA was the organization, and then the language is ECMAScript, which is JavaScript. And then we have a whole committee behind the language, uh, which is called TC39, Technical Committee. So they're the ones who are responsible for uh, like deciding what will go into the language, which I found to be very interesting. Uh, and then yeah. obviously, um, yeah. You want to say something? <laughs> One of the interesting things I think I learned about from the article is the the smoosh gates um, case. And I remember um, like three weeks ago, I was helping out a friend with a project. And then inside the code, I had written basically um, extending, extending the extending 
a class, the class string. So um, string dot prototype, and then just adding another function inside it. And I remember him coming back and going, "Is this really the right way of doing this?" And so I know Smush Git has something to do with that. And um, so yeah, could you t t tell us what Smush Git is? Yeah. So so JS the way it is. So we know that there's a lot of frameworks uh, like around JavaScript. And obviously, um, if you have similar names, so for example, if I have a code base and I have variable, uh, for example, first name, and you also have a similar variable name in your code base as well, and we want to merge those two things, when we want to run the code, there's going to be a conflict, obviously, right? Because we have two variables that have the same name, right? So what happened is, uh, if I remember correctly, I think um, the name they wanted to use in, um, I don't remember exactly what the issue was, because I do remember they wanted to add a new, was it a keyword in the language, but mm -hmm. the keyword was being used by another framework. Yeah, flatten. So they wanted to, yes. to use flatten. But then shipping that feature um, in Firefox cost um, a popular website to to break, and so it was a problem with um, with um, a library called Mutools that already had that function inside it called Flatten, and so it cost a lot of things to break. And yeah, so they suggested to to name to 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 rename Flatten to Smush. So yeah, hence Smush Git. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah. I don't remember because I did it a while back. Yeah, I think that that was something about again, like you mentioned, the backward compatibility, and so that was something they they probably they hadn't considered because again, looking at this, this is a library that is using this name Flatten, and then they want to add that into into the language, and so it just cost things to break. Um, yeah, I I, mm -hmm. I that was that was actually a very interesting um thing to learn. Um, so yeah, so we get to ECMAScript, and ECMAScript is growing now. I don't know if, no, already then um, TC39 had been formed and they were the ones making the decisions on the committee. And so yeah, so now we have ECMAScript. And so ECMAScript is ideally just JavaScript. And but then today we really wanted to talk about um, the JavaScript runtime and what it actually means and what actually happens when a JavaScript program is running. So, yeah, so the JavaScript runtime. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we start? Yeah, the way I like to think about it, so I think where we can start is what, like, what is a runtime first of all? Or why do you, why do you have something called like a runtime? So even when you did, because uh, it's not something that you hear people talking about all the time, especially in the programming world. So even when you sent me the, um, DM'd me to tell me this is what we're going to be talking about, I thought you'd actually made a mistake and you wanted us to actually just talk about JavaScript. So, <laughs> so now if 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 you like, if you think what I normally like to do is when I'm trying to explain like uh, a programming concept, I try to remove it outside of the entities of programming. And think about it in terms of like just life, like what is an environment, right? So yeah. the JavaScript runtime environment, in its simplest form, is simply a place where you can run JavaScript. That's all that it is, right? So yeah. we have two main environments. We have the browser, and then we have Node.js. So the way I like to explain it is. When you when you start up your Firefox or your Chrome or your Safari or your Mozilla, you don't need to install JavaScript. It doesn't tell you, oh, we need you to install JavaScript for you to have these capabilities, right? So what that should tell you is that when you're writing your code, your JavaScript code, it's being consumed by something. Something is actually able to take that JavaScript code, then turn it into machine code, right? So yes. We know there is an environment somewhere that is able to understand JavaScript, which is um, your browser. So 
the JavaScript runtime environment is mainly made up of four things. So we have the JavaScript engine, which has uh, the memory heap and the call stack. We also have the event loop, right, which is responsible for giving JavaScript that asynchronous look, because it's not really asynchronous, it just behaves, it just mimics async behavior. And then we have uh, the message queue, right, which is yeah. also sometimes called the callback queue. And then we have APIs. So, for example, on the web, you have stuff like set timeout or set immediate. Those things are not part of JavaScript. That's not actually ECMA. That's web APIs giving you extra functionality for, for the language. So once you have those four things, then you have an environment that can run JavaScript. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I think an important thing to mention is the, so that is how the runtime looks like in a browser. You have the web APIs, but then in Node, you have something different. Um, so yeah, just what is um, the, how does the JS runtime in Node look like? So in Node, so all right, so the first thing we started talking about was uh, when, we, when I mentioned the, the event, the, the environment is the JS engine. So the JS engine is the heart and soul of your environment. Because if you think about it at high level, right? If you know anything about computers, you know that your processor only understands binary, right? So the JS yeah. engine is the thing that is responsible for taking your JavaScript code, which you and I can understand, and then transforming it into something that is machine readable. So that JS engine, when you're talking about Node, what the creator of Node did was he took out that JS engine, which is the V8. Uh, that's what Chrome uses, Google Chrome. And then he simply removed it out of the browser so that it's now an executable file that lives outside of the browser. That's why when you download, when you are using JavaScript on the browser, you don't need to download it. But when you want to use Node.js, you need an executable file because now it doesn't live inside your browser. It now exists outside of the browser. So you simply took that JS engine, right? With the thing that consumes your JavaScript and now made it possible okay. to run outside of the browser. So it's just a C++ application. Okay, okay. and and. They definitely the web APIs don't come with it. So they don't come with they don't come with the, the web APIs. So they have their own APIs that are more suited to backend development, like the FS module, the OS module, um, things that you're going to need when you're interacting with a backend, like a server. So in in Node.js, we don't have the DOM. The DOM is also an API on the front end in the browser but we don't have it in, in Node.js because you don't need to interact with the DOM, do you? I also found out something yeah. interesting a few weeks back as I was doing the mentorships. It turns out uh, set immediate, I don't think it's available in Node, uh -huh. but it is available on the browser, which I did not know. I just found out uh, as so, I was doing some. Oh. So there are things that cross over that and others don't, like I mean, like something like, console log that is ideally like okay would you call it a, a web api but then it also exists in node.js i think you would because console.log is not part of javascript again so it is uh it is an api just like set okay. timeout is available on the browser but also available in node.js but you don't have the fs uh, module on your browser but you do have it in the back end so that should tell you so I had an, a very interesting thought today, like, so does it mean that all you need to run JavaScript is just the JS engine? Albeit with very, very little capabilities, because now if you don't have the DOM, for example, then what are you doing on? Like, just think about it. Yeah, it makes sense. So say you're building for an IoT device. You're building for an IoT device and you need to do that with JavaScript. Okay, I don't know why you'd want to do that with JavaScript, but let us say you want to do that with JavaScript. So it would be look at the things that you need. Yeah. <laughs> look at the things that you need. Yeah. And then, of course, you wouldn't want to do stuff with Windows on an IoT device. So, yeah, I think there, there are those case scenarios where you'd need, you'd need just 
the engine itself. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely the engine with a with a message yeah. queue and a yeah micro task queue. Um, so those are we we are mentioning engines a lot and V8 and yeah I mean which is usually interesting because I think that is one of the most popular engines. One because V8 is an actual engine for a vehicle, but yeah. So I the the equivalent of that in Firefox is Spider Monkey, and on Safari is JavaScript Core. Yeah. So so we are going to definitely take a bias on the JS runtime on the web, just because um, <laughs> I am the one <laughs> asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, we, yeah, we're definitely going to take that bias on the web, and so yeah, we'll be mentioning web APIs for free. Um, so yeah, we've talked about um, the components of the runtime, the JavaScript engine, the web APIs, the callback queue, the call, um, the message queue, and then the micro task queue. So the engine, the JS engine. Um, I'm curious. Um, let us talk about the engine. What are some of the components that exist in the engine that enable it to perform um, the functions that it does perform? Um, so I actually was listening to um, a certain talk uh, by someone who was who works on the V8. Turns out like most of the work that is done for V8 is done in German, I think. Most of the engineers are in German. So they were trying to explain uh, the process of optimizing the engine because it's extremely fast, which is not something that was always the case with with uh, with JavaScript. Because it's a uh, when initially when the the language came out, it was an interpreted language. So that means you read your code, you execute immediately. You read your code, you execute immediately. You don't have uh, an executable file like when you have like a C plus plus. Um, program where you first of all need to build the thing into an executable and then run it. But with now interpreted languages where you first of all, you read the, the code and then you execute immediately. Um, yeah. But obviously the problem with that was um, there is no, we don't have an opportunity to, to optimize the code because you're reading and then executing. Compared to a compiled language, for example, whereby if you're reading the whole code first before executing, then you can also optimize the code as you're reading it because you read, then execute. But the issue with interpreted languages was you don't really have room for optimizing, right? So one of the main things with the current engines that consume JavaScript is JIT, right? Just-in-time compilation, right? I don't know whether... So I've been doing a bit of digging into this. Uh, and it is still super confusing to me. Do we call it an interpreted language? Do we call it a compiled language? Because with JIT, it takes the best of both worlds, right? Because think about it. You do still interpret the language, but then you have something that is watching your code, right? As you consume it, and then checks for any repetitive structure. So if you have objects that are very similar um, shape, right? Instead of running the same thing over and over again, it will index that particular structure, right? Because the V8 engine, for example, comes with, it has two compilers. It has a baseline compiler and it has an optimizing compiler. So the optimizing compiler will make sure that anytime we have code that has repeated itself a bunch of times, then we can index that structure. So that anytime we come across the same thing, we don't need to redo the whole logic again. We can simply pick up the framework for that particular operation from our index and then reuse it. So okay. it's so in terms of whether it's still like an interpreted language or a compiled language, I think <laughs> has been a case uh, of huge debate. Um I think you can call it both. And but then you have to specify it is just in time and not ahead of time. So yeah, JavaScript is an interpreted and just in time compiled language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because because yeah, when you get hybrid. into the compiled when you get into the compiled side, now other arguments will come up and then people will be like, oh but then this is how compilation happens in this language. This is how yeah. So yeah. So just in time compilation. So yeah. Um that is interesting. Um 
So it, within within the JavaScript engine, there is a, a heap and a call stack. Um, and so these are basically sort of that data structures that exist within within the, the engine that enable it to perform those functions that you are talking about now. The, the being able to, to, to interpret things and being able to read line by line and also being able to like also at the same time perform the just-in-time compilation. But then um, externally, I'm not sure, um, would you like to expound more on the heap and the call stack within the engine? Within the engine? Yeah. Mm, okay, so I do understand what the call stack is for. So mm -hmm. let me try to, so let's look at a scenario. So you have, you have four functions that you want to run in your code. Right, you have function one, function two, and function function three and function four. Now, the call stack is a data structure that is LIFO, so last in, first out. So it's in charge of looking at your function calls. So anytime you have a function that you're calling, it's put on the call stack. Okay, so that that function is is obviously consumed, and then once it's done, it's popped off the stack. Right. So okay. the more you have, so every time you have a new function. Mm -hmm. So I wish you could draw this picture. So externally, we have the runtime itself. Within the runtime, we have a JavaScript engine, a web API, a call stack queue, and a micro task queue. So is what you are describing the call stack inside the engine or the call stack inside the runtime or the call stack queue? inside the runtime. So, th so this is the call time within the JS engine. Okay. Within the JS engine. Okay. Within the JS engine. Because the JS engine is the thing that is responsible for consuming your JavaScript, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so the call stack I'm describing is um, the one that is within the JS engine. So JavaScript is obviously a, sing uh, a single-threaded language. Right. So it means you only have one process. So you can only consume one thing at a time. So that call stack anytime. So when you run your, your, your JavaScript for the first time, the main process will be put on the call stack. Right. The main process. So if you have a console.log, for example, there is a main process that is at the bottom of the call stack. So even if you don't have a function that's running, running your main JavaScript process. So if you now call a new function, it's placed on top of, it's now the first thing on the call stack. If you call another one without, so for example, if you call a function within another function, your first function will not be popped off. You will simply have another function come on top of the first function. And then another one if you have another one and so forth. And so. so just think of it like a stack of books. So the book at the top was the last one to come in. Right, yeah. that's the last book that came into into the the call stack. Now, yeah. once you let's assume it's a book you're actually reading, like you have a shelf of books. So, if the newest book that you bought, you just finished reading it, right? So it's at the top of the call stack, right? Mm -hmm. If you finish reading it, you pop it off because you you're done with it, right? And then you go to the yeah. next one, you pop it off. You go to the next one, you pop it off. So the call stack will always, that's how it, it consumes the JavaScript. So the last thing that came into the call stack will be the first thing that comes out. Now, we have not gotten into the, the callback queue because the callback queue is a separate thing. So JS is by default, like it will only do one thing at a time. Okay, are we going to the callback queue right now? This callback terms are so many, so you need to keep track of. So that is the <laughs> that is the callback okay. inside the JavaScript runtime. So now mm. the callback queue. So now, okay, the callback queue. Okay, so I think what I can do let's 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 revisit our initial diagram of the environment. You have the engine, right? Yeah. You have the queue, the message queue or the callback queue. You have APIs, uh -huh. right? Yes. And then. You also have uh, what you mentioned, the microtask queue, right? Yes. Now, but you can you can you can you can you can remove the microtask queue when you're not talking about promises, because now when you're talking about promises, then 
that's when the microtask queue comes into play, right? Okay. So first of all, let's let's discuss without the microtask queue. So let's look at the JS engine, the message queue or the callback queue, right? Um, and the event loop. <laughs> okay, so, okay, the event loop. Okay, my diagram had JavaScript engine, web APIs, and now we've removed the microtask queue, we only have the callback queue. Now you've mentioned um, the event loop. Mm -hmm. So fitting the event loop, fitting the event loop, it just fits into the, into the runtime. Yes, fits it. Because okay. I, did, I think I did mention it when I initially mentioned the, the environment. Or I didn't, I think I did. Because you obviously need it for you to have that asynchronous behavior. Yeah. So let's let's go through the whole thing again. JS engine, the message or callback queue, right? Because you can use any of the two terms. And then we have the event loop, right? Are we still on track? So is that what I had yes. mentioned initially? So yes, that's uh, it, right? Return the web APIs. Okay, <laughs> okay, and the web APIs. Okay, and the web APIs. So now, when you are consuming synchronous code, when you have a for loop, when you have a for loop running in your program, it's going to execute it in the call stack. So for as long as your for loop has not ended, right, your call stack is blocked. You can't have anything else there until that that operation is done, right? Now, anytime you have some asynchronous behavior, when you're fetching data from a database, when you have a set timeout, um, when you have uh, like a callback in your function, now that operation, right? The idea behind it is we don't know how long this operation is going to take. So instead of blocking the main thread, right, that call stack, instead of blocking that call stack, let's give this functionality, right, to something else. Let's put it somewhere. Let's stash it somewhere for a while until we are done with every synchronous operation that we need to do. So what happens is when you have a callback, so when you have a set timeout and you pass in a callback function, what happens is that callback is going to be put in the message queue, right? The message queue is another data structure. So the message, remember our call stack is a LIFO, so last in, first out. Our message queue yes. is FIFO, which is first in, first out, right? So if we have a set timeout, okay. it's not, it's going to be put into the message queue, right? And wait, it's going to wait until our call stack is empty. So remember, the set timeout is an API. It's a web API, some extra functionality, right? So the set timeout is going to be put in the message queue, and it's going to wait for the call stack to be empty. That's why even when you have a set timeout that is set to zero milliseconds, and then right below it, you have a console log, the console log logs before the set timeout. That's because your set timeout was put in the message queue, and then your console log that is synchronous was put in the call stack. So once that is done, then our set timeout will come back. Now, where the event loop comes in here with that whole picture is, so the work of the event loop is to sit and check the call stack and the message queue. So anytime we have something in the message queue, but the call stack is empty, we take whatever is in the callback queue, right? And then we put it on the call stack. That's basically what it does, hence the name a loop. Keeps looping over and over okay. and over, checking, checking. Do we have anything on this side? Do we have anything on this side? Then pops it into the call stack if we do. Okay. Like, like you okay. have something to say. <laughs> I have a lot of things to say because I, um, the question of um, the set timeout at zero is one question that a lot of people are asked in interviews. I have been asked that. And it usually looks especially when you think of javascript as just interpreted you think oh this thing is going to execute line by line so it is definitely going to console log <laughs> the, the function yeah. inside the search timeout first but then yeah i mean yeah that is interesting so so you said that the the uh the callback queue is first in first out but then it, yes. it will have to wait will it have to wait Will it have to wait for for whatever was being executed in the in the main loop to finish? 
yes, it has to. So the call stack is the thing you have to have in your mind. So for as long as the call stack is not empty, it doesn't matter whether you put in zero milliseconds or a thousand milliseconds. For as long as you have an operation on the call stack that is synchronous, so like a for loop, if you want to count from one to infinity, for example, let's assume that's going to blow the stack because it's going to keep on going up and up and up. So remember that call stack. It's going to keep calling and calling and calling and calling, but the call stack is not infinite. At some point, it's going to end. So you're going to end up blowing the call stack. So now in that scenario, if you have a, an infinite for loop, right? If you have an infinite for loop, that's never going to end. And you also have a set timeout that's set to zero milliseconds. And then you have a console log within the set timeout that says called after X milliseconds. Your set timeout will never come to the call stack. Uh, stack. You never see it in the console because the call stack is blocked. So your message queue, at no point will your call, your, like your call stack be empty. So the event loop will never be able to bring it back to, to the call stack. So you'll never actually see it. So even if you set zero milliseconds, for as long as the call stack is not empty, it doesn't matter. The waiting does not happen um, like where most people think it will. That's why the zero milliseconds doesn't come before like a console log. Okay. And so we are doing all this because JavaScript is single-threaded. And yes. we don't want to block things. Yes, we don't want to block things. Okay, I wish I wish you had given the 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 you know you know that long definition of what JavaScript is. I should have I wish you'd have given that so that you can flow with it. But anyway, um, so so yeah, so you basically talked about um the call stack and how it works and um yeah, I think the other the other rightful thing to talk about would be the microtask queue and sort of here sort of the differences between what a task is and what a microtask is. Mm. Okay. So the way I understand the whole um, the whole architecture of, of the microtask and the message queue. So mm. promises, for example. So promises were a feature that were introduced with ES6, right? So they were a different way to handle asynchronous JavaScript. Because before that, people used to use callbacks. So that same that same structure that you see with set time. So you have a function that takes in another function, right? So that's the, that's what we mean when we say a callback. The function that is being taken in is the callback. Yeah. You also see it with uh, array methods like map, right? Where you yeah. have another function. So that's how JavaScript used to be, asynchronous JavaScript used to be done. But that obviously had its issues, something called the callback hell, where one callback is calling another callback, and then that callback is calling another callback, and so forth and so forth. So it's not very easy to, to even debug the thing. So now promises were introduced to sort of fix that issue. So now we've talked about the callback queue. So when you have your callbacks, they are put in the callback queue, right? That's where they wait for your call stack to be empty. But promises are put in the microtask queue. So the difference is the microtask queue has a higher priority than your, than your callback queue. So if you have a promise that is resolving immediately and you have a set timeout that is set to zero milliseconds, the promise will come back before the, the set timeout. That's because your your um, promise has more priority. Okay. <laughs> I, I know you're wondering why I'm smiling. I'm smiling because I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There uh -huh. is so your 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 promises are consumed differently. Um, because that's like you can just try it in your code. Try to have a set timeout that's set to zero milliseconds and then have a promise that resolves immediately. So just say promise dot then resolve it immediately. Don't even wait for anything. The promise will come first because it has higher priority than the message queue. Something interesting I also found out a few days back is it turns out your in the microtask queue, it has its own event loop. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, it turns out uh -huh. that when you have 
So when you have, when you have, um, remember the overall structure. So we have the call stack, we have the message queue, we have the web APIs, we have the event loop. We've now introduced the microtask queue, right? Yes. Now, the microtask queue, right? So when you're consuming a promise, it's still going to be processed. It's like, for example, if you're trying to do some some operation in a promise, when you're using a promise, when you're using promises within the microtask queue, it's still going to consume that. It's going to process that whatever functionality you are trying to do. But when you're using the message queue callbacks, so the actual logic you are trying to run will not will not be run. It will not actually process that information until the call stack is empty. So with with the with the with the macro task queue, right, the code is still going to be consumed. As in, if you are trying to count from one to ten, it's still going to count from one to ten. It's just that you be be able to see it in the call stack. But with a message queue, right, when you're using callbacks. The process of running, for example, a follow or whatever operation you're trying to do, it will not happen because the call stack is not empty. So as it turns out, again, there is some very brilliant engineering going on behind the scenes for like how that asynchronous behavior is very interesting and also quite perplexing. Um, <laughs> so, so, so this, is, <laughs> this is very, this is very um, sort of revealing. I, I wish I wish there was a way we could whiteboard the list so that like people can actually see it. But then I, I hope it is making sense. Um it is for me. Um but then yeah. Um just going back again to the single threaded um thing. And the reason why again you're doing all this is because JavaScript needs to know the engine needs to know what it should give priority. And so that is why we need all these things just to make sure we, we, we perform non blocking tasks. Um, but then here's the thing I understand there is a way to do multi threading in JavaScript. So this is extremely <laughs> off topic, but then just for the people who think, uh, yeah, JavaScript is single threaded, but then there are ways of doing multi threading, multi threaded tasks. So yeah, could you? Just talk about multi-threading, just a little bit. Multi-threading in JavaScript. In 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 JavaScript, well, that is where now I will. So um, I haven't really worked with. I think it's web workers, right? I think web workers yes. do that. But so I haven't really gotten into doing like multi-threading in in JS. So I would not be qualified to um tell you how we're able to do that. It, I haven't gotten okay. a situation where I need to. Yeah. Have you done it yourself? Have you? Um, web workers. Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so. Um, I I don't think so. I'm trying. I'm trying to think about service workers. Service workers and web workers are different things, right? Because I've used a lot of service workers in Chrome extensions because I am I am a very big fan of building extensions. But then yeah, I don't think they're really the same. But then they. They kinda are in the sense that a service worker is just would sort of is expecting you to do something, and so when that thing happens, it will be there to to sort of listen to it. Sounds sounds a lot like sockets, but then yeah, kinda. But then I just wanted to prove the point. You know, when other people are talking about languages like Go and and C plus plus, you you hear these things, multi threading and concurrency, and yeah. But then yeah, you can also do that in JavaScript. So again, I, I really hope we've given this this absurd description of JavaScript. Um, this um, if you watch the video JavaScript in 100 seconds by Fireshift, um, this is the definition of JavaScript. That JavaScript is a high-level, single-threaded, garbage-collected, interpreted for just-in-time compiled, prototype-based, multi-paradigm dynamic language with a non-blocking feature. <laughs> so all this terminology, some of them we've talked about. Um, high level is very self-explanatory. It is just a high-level language, just like um, other languages like Python. It just means this thing has to be sort of um, uh, you need to be converted in one way or another or another into machine code. Single-threaded. That is exactly what we've been talking about. We are trying. This thing, this thing is just a single thread, and we're trying not to block any part of it, so that things just flow smoothly. Um, garbage collected. 
Do you want to take part? A garbage collection in JavaScript. Actually, actually, I wanted actually to like press a bit on the single threadedness of. Uh, okay. Like, what does that mean? Because that's another thing that is perplexing to like every <laughs> developer that has. If you, if you don't have like if you've not gone the traditional way of like uh, doing programming or web or just basically writing software, that term is very confusing. Because what? So you mean there is? So if there's single threaded, does it mean we have double threaded also? <laughs> you see where I'm going? Like yes. Right. So I think um, I I don't know whether you have an idea what single threadedness mean. What what exactly is that? What? How would you um? define that term like what is a thread um, um i would say um i'm trying i'm trying to think of something i did a while ago which is actually stupid um so i was asked i was asked somewhere could you explain what you're threading to a, a five-year-old child and my explanation mm-hmm. was um doing doing multiple things at the same time so imagine you the normal way you eat while you watch a youtube video you're basically multi-threading you're doing two things at the same time so single threading single threaded just means you can only do one thing at the same at, at a particular period in time at a certain point in time you can only do one thing so i think that goes like hand in hand with what we were just explaining about the call stack right Remember, it has to do one thing at a time. You don't have access to um, something else. So you can only do this thing right now. And if you want to behave as if you're con- doing something concurrently, then you need to use this this magic on the side that, you know, you're sort of pretending that you're, <laughs> you're, you're doing things concurrently, but you're really not because you just have one. Yeah, um, and that is the like way workers now. And that is where web workers come in. Oh, fantastic. Um, So the next bunch of terms are interpreted or just in time compiled? Uh, Interpreted in the the JIT, the JIT compiler. That's that's a very interesting, like, I think, I think the guys behind uh, the, I had, I had, I was listening to another podcast because I like listening to like, uh, talks about JavaScript and just the ecosystem, the whole thing. And some very senior engineer, I can't remember from which company, he was on a certain podcast called the Lex Friedman podcast. He was saying that JavaScript is like a miracle. <laughs> like the engineering behind it is exceptional. Because if you, if you look at, it's interpreted, but yet it's extremely fast. So those two things traditionally should not go hand in hand. So interpreted languages right? It will read your code, execute immediately, right? That's that's the whole thing for for interpreted languages. So there's, if you, if you dig around the internet, look for differences between compiled languages and interpreted languages. The thing that seems to stick out most of the time is um, when you, when the two start off, so if you start the two programs at the same time, the interpreted one is faster because it's just reading immediately. There's no compiling before you read. There's no compiling and then yeah. executing. It's a one-step process. Just execute. Don't compile and then execute. But as your program becomes bigger, right? As you, when you have more and more code to execute, and then as you have, for example, if you have, uh, I give an example of, for example, objects that have similar shapes. When you're doing it purely as an interpreted language, there is no room for optimization because just doesn't make any sense. Why would you, if I keep reusing a certain object all the time, wouldn't it be easier for me to like index that shape? And then anytime I want to use it again, I can just index that value. Think about like a database, for example, when you're indexing your databases, right? Using keys, right? The whole thing with that is you don't want to go through the entire database to just find one thing. If you can index that value and then find it later on. So with JIT, that is what it does. It's the best of both worlds. We still have one, just one process. We are not still, we're not building, we just execute. But as we execute, we also optimize. The JIT compiler is optimizing your code to run faster. 
And you even have JS engines that have three compilers. So things that are still working in the, like for example, the one that is used with uh, Safari, I think it's JavaScript core, is it? Yes. The engine, yes. it has, I think it has three compilers whereby their only work is to make the language faster. And then we have now your V8, which has two. I'm not sure about you know, the spider monkeys and whatnot, but what they're simply supposed to do is make your code run faster by optimizing. Like, and if you think about it, it's so obvious. Like, if you had something that is very slow, the best way to make it fast is to try and make the re repetitive processes, like store them somewhere, and then anytime you need it, just take it and then just execute it immediately. So, so that's what the JIT is. The JIT just sits in between your, your, as you're interpreting, also optimize the code, make it faster, make it better. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. I don't um, know whether I answered your question. <laughs> you really are expounding on some of these terms because some of them just usually sound like um, just big words. But then, yeah, I think it is good to actually know what they do. Just a hint of what they get to do. And yeah, that is interesting. And yeah, we are almost getting to the middle of the, of the definition. We are at the middle of the definition. The other group of terms are, so it was also described as a prototype-based mm -hmm. language. A prototype-based language. Um, the, the, when you console log, when you console log, um, say, an object in, in JavaScript, which I mean, everything in JavaScript is an object. Okay, that is another thing. Hey, you you want it, to? <laughs> I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. So when I console log, <laughs> when I console log an object, there is usually this thing mm -hmm. at the bottom that you see written that is called prototype. Yeah. So yeah. so I think that is where the the, the prototype based um comes that, from. That, yeah. 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 I I don't know if you're willing to expand on that. Yeah, I, I can't expound on it because, so I actually did a deep dive on this a few weeks back. Uh, what is this prototype? What, what What is this prototype chain? Um, and, and what I realized is, um, obviously in, in JavaScript, the way you normally declare your objects, so for example, const um, first name or person, const person, and then you have your calibraces, then you define the properties, right? Um, when you do that, right? So when you have declared your when you have declared your object and now you want to use it somehow. So you want to say person dot has own property, for example, right? You want to check whether our object has a particular property. That dot has own property, we did not define it ourselves, right? Yeah. We didn't write that function in our object, that method. We just simply declared an object and gave it like for example two properties, first name and last name. And yet, when you use dot has own property on that object, it works. You can check whether that object has a particular property. So where does that has own property come from? It comes from object.prototype. So every object that you create in JavaScript has that parent. So think about it like when you've created your object, it has a parent beneath it. And now anytime um, we want to use some of the functionalities like has own property, it inherits them from the object dot prototype. Oh, interesting! Is that is that prototypal inheritance? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. So, oh, one of the most one of the interesting things I learned is that um, so if I if I declare if I say const if I write a line like um, const name equals Steve, what I'm essentially mm -hmm. saying is const name equals an instance of the class string. Mm -hmm. So that is how yes. that is that is why um, with with this value of, of the string Steve I can do um, mm -hmm. um, Steve or name dot name dot to uppercase because yes it, it is a reference of that in instantiated class. Oh yes that's why dot length okay. also works because when you when you're creating a variable and you set it to a string value, right? You can access dot length, but you didn't define that in your string, did you? You just gave it your, you just gave it the, the value. 
So it's inheriting the dot length from something else that is not yes. <laughs> get it. Like it makes sense once you when you think about it. Yeah, it 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 is also it is also something with um with I'm just mentioning something totally different, which is um, sort of class extensions, and like we had mentioned earlier, you can add onto you have the in a string you have the to uppercase to lowercase in an object you can do all those things. You can also add your own custom custom um, methods inside that class, and so that is why you do um array array dot prototype and then you create your own. yeah and so yeah. in react in, in react you usually do this thing okay at least for the people who've written class components in react have you written class mm. components in react so you I do did, but for a very short I... oh okay i think i do it i think i'm still doing it actually um what? class <laughs> is that a choice <laughs> And no, I, I, I work on a very legacy code this and yeah, it's just me a lot of yeah. Um class app extends extends react.component or extends component. And what you're doing is you're basically mm-hmm. creating a class called app that is extending an already existing class called component. So basically you're like you're sort of extending your functionality. So now that is where you can do lifecycle methods inside this application and you can do mm-hmm. all those all these yeah. other things. Yeah. I still I still think I still and think class components, class components in React were a really good idea. I'm not saying people should use <laughs> it. Choose your person. Yeah. But then yeah, yeah. Things, uh, yeah. Yeah. So so just before we move on, like uh with like with uh classes. Classes are just an abstraction, right? Because JS really is not, it's not like a, um, it's not an OOP language, is it? It's a multi-paradigm language. So when you use classes, it's just syntactic sugar. It's still using the function. So so when you, when you, when you want to create uh, like multiple classes, right? Initially, before we got classes in JavaScript, so the class keyword, we would use functions, right? That's what you would yeah. use. You something to construct your classes. So your object, sorry, something to construct your object. So you'd have, for example, uh, um, const. So function, and then you give it person. You have to use a capital P. So because now we are telling this, we're telling um, the program, we are about to create a factory, something that will create objects. So function, person, and then you pass in your parameters, first name, last name. Right, and then now within that function you have your this dot first name is equals to first name, this dot last name is equals. To, and then now when you want to instantiate that object, is now when you use the new keyword, right? Yeah. So anytime you use the new keyword anywhere in your program, you're using some sort of factory that is creating objects. Yeah. So, so it makes it very easy even to like have a like a high of high level overview of what classes do. I don't know whether that makes sense. It's you smiling. <laughs> yeah, because because it is very easy to get lost. It is very easy to get lost mm. because now that is uh, another concept called the factory functions. Oh, yeah. So I like that. I like that you mentioned the multi-paradigm part of JavaScript, which was the next term that JavaScript is a multi-paradigm language. Which yeah, thank you for for that. Um, the other term is dynamic language. The JavaScript is a dynamic language. Yeah. Yes. So I think one of the reasons why JavaScript and Python are so popular is because of that, that dynamism. What we mean by a dynamic language is when you declare your variables, let first name equals to, you give it a string value. It doesn't ask you to give it the type of value, right? So yeah. it doesn't force you to tell it exactly the value type as you're writing it. You, you don't have to say let first name and then like, for example, I think in C++ or most strongly typed languages, which are the opposite of dynamically typed languages. or So with those languages, you have to define the type of value before you assign it. So you'd say in a strongly typed language, you'd have to say let first name 
and then give it a type. So what type of variable are you? What, what is the value? Is it a string value? Is it a number value? Is it a Boolean value? Like give us the, give us the type of value before you, you can actually use it. But in JavaScript, you don't have to do that. The language will do that for you, right? That's what we mean when we say it's a dynamic language. It, add, it gives you that, that ability to just write your, um, your variables, write your, your functions, write all these things without really telling it exactly the type of value that you're giving it. Yeah. It's just going to infer the value. This, this used to be a good thing until now. Like, uh, we, we now have TypeScript. <laughs> we have TypeScript. <laughs> Type, TypeScript yeah. just shows up in the chat. Okay. So um, that was that was actually the last term, and then the last thing is JavaScript has an unblocking event loop, which I think you talked about in the unblocking event loop. Okay, I think that's it. That's it for this one. At the end of at the end of every episode, we do this thing where we I ask the guests something to tell me to tell the people something they're currently interested in. And so, yeah, what are you currently interested in? What are your current interests? Uh, they so have to be legal. Oddly enough, funny enough. <laughs> Does it have to be like, because actually now nowadays, most of the things I do are just related to programming. So yeah, the be. thing I'm trying to, to, dive, to dive into is uh, like advanced TypeScript. Uh, I think I've... So something I, I had a, an interview for a certain back end role uh, last week. And obviously I was, I think I know enough basics JavaScript to sort of jump into any, um, any framework. So I was supposed to implement the solution using Nest.js. I don't know whether you heard of Nest. It's a backend framework that you use to, so it uses Express and Fastify. So it uses those two, those two things as well. And Nest is, they love TypeScript. My goodness, they are absolutely in love with TypeScript. So it's, it's TypeScript by default. And then the whole pattern of how you're supposed to arrange your code, it's just like, I mean, I, I went through the documentation and I was just confused from the word go. So I'm trying to get into more TypeScript. That's what I'm trying to get into. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, this was this was. I don't feel like we've exhausted this conversation. There are a lot of things that someone can talk about in JavaScript. Um, but thank you for coming on and thank you for having this fruitful conversation. You're very welcome, and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you follow Ian on Twitter at MacBull. That is at MCBOOL. And if you have any queries, feel free to email us at concurrencypod.gmail.com. I was your host, Steve Kibika. Until the next one, bye.